Welcome to The Dynamist, a podcast by Lincoln Network. I'm Evan Schwarzstraber, Senior Fellow at Lincoln Network. Before we jump into anything else, let's talk about the name, Dynamism. You might be listening to this thinking, what is that? It sounds nerdy. Maybe it sounds cool. I don't know. If that's your reaction, you're probably in the right place. Let's start with the dictionary definition. The quality of being characterized by vigorous activity and progress. Sounds great, but what does that mean? Dynamism is not just a dictionary definition. It's an entire school of thought that is very influential in the technology space, but also the technology policy space. There's a lots of folks who can maybe claim credit for it, but one person in particular who deserves a lot of credit for fleshing out this idea of dynamism is Virginia Postrel. She is the author of The Future and Its Enemies, a seminal 1998 book about this topic. So to discuss this further, I've got none other than Zach Graves, Executive Director at Lincoln Network, joining the show. Zach, thanks so much. Absolutely. Excited to talk about it. So dynamism, very important in Silicon Valley, very important to the technology space. These are things that Lincoln Network, a tech policy think tank, of course, focuses on. When you think about dynamism, what does it mean to you? And how do you put it in context of where we are as a society right now? Is it that we are stagnant and we need to be more, become more dynamist? Is it that we have been dynamist and the fuddy-duddies in Washington, D.C. just don't appreciate all the change that's been going on? How do you contextualize this idea, given that you're a policy person, you're in D.C., but Lincoln Network is also very involved with the discussion around actual technology, how it's developing, talking to engineers in Silicon Valley, et cetera? Yeah, I think it's worth breaking this down because there's a few, I think, really important concepts that's part of this this discourse. One is this idea of stagnation, a narrative that we've seen kind of stalling out of kind of the future that was promised or imagined by the the utopians in the 60s, you know, vacations on the moon and, you know, colonizing Mars and all of these things where you would, you know, expected to see the pace of technological change that you saw, you know, maybe from the 19th century to the 20th century where you saw kind of huge rapid improvement. Yeah, from the horse to the automobile, as opposed to the iPhone 13 to the iPhone 14. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. And so a line that, you know, entrepreneur and, and venture capitalist Peter Thiel has is that we have, you know, we've achieved the Star Trek computer, but we haven't really had anything else. I think that's directionally right, maybe a little overstated. We can talk about that more later. But that's really, I think, an important component of this narrative. Another one, I think, is particularly, you know, how Mark Andreessen, Andreessen Horowitz, another big important VC firm, you know, has talked about in, in kind of reaction to the institutional failures of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly on the public sector side. Uh, and I think his thesis was really about how the private sector needs to step up into this space and build and innovate where the public sector, you know, is not and is breaking down. And I think that's an important part here. He had a, an important essay around, you know, kind of that it's time to sort of build new things and they have a portfolio around American dynamism, similarly branded, that you know is doing kind of important investments in the space. There's a really cool essay on it by one of the program leads, Catherine Boyle. So I think that's a key component of it. And then another, I think, is this problem that Lincoln works a lot on, which is the, the sort of translation breakdown between the tech founder builder community, you know, in Silicon Valley, but also elsewhere, and sort of the DC policymaker space. And I think a really you know key piece of this is that, you know, tech and the future is still vastly underrepresented in Washington. And that's even while the tech industry is, has, has rocketed to become one of the biggest spenders on influence and lobbying and advocacy 
The problem is, though, that that's the large incumbents and the stuff that they're talking about, the issues that they're working on are, you know, increasingly about defending their current business model and often being willing to put, you know, the velvet ropes up to future competitors. And so, you know, what that ends up doing, I think, is making the conversation about innovation policy, you know, about narrow trench warfare kinds of issues when we should be talking about what policy frameworks or investments will enable the next trillion dollar American tech company to come into being. Right. And the old line about Silicon Valley in DC was that forever, these companies that are now the largest companies in the world, they were the darling of both the left and the right because both political sides saw something in them that they liked, right? So if you were a typical free market libertarian-ish Republican, you saw the greatest validation of the American system because this was the least regulated sector in the economy, skyrocketed to dominance and value, huge success all over the world. Products are everywhere other than China. We can get to that. <laughs> and, uh, and it's amazing, right? And then if you were on the left, you saw companies that kind of shared your cultural values and they were big on the environment and, and those types of issues and, and high-skilled immigration, that kind of stuff. So both parties love them. Then, of course, massive fall from grace in terms of the the political sphere, maybe less so on the public, although the American public is less sanguine about these companies than they probably ever have been. But that was the old line. And you can look at this and say, well, now Congress has caught up, right? Because they're talking about antitrust. They're talking about liability issues with Section 230. But what you're saying is just because there's a lot of ink spilled in the press about these large tech companies and just because now there's massive political operations around these issues and senators are talking about it and congressmen are talking about it, that they're not necessarily focused on the right issues? I think the issues they're focused on are, are, are perfectly legitimate ones for industry to, to work on. I think it would be a mistake, though, to think that those things are automatically going to help drive the future forward and to make technological progress happen faster. A lot of times, as you said, they're, they're playing defense. They're under increased criticism. And they're you know working on issues that, at the end of the day, they'll compromise on. The big firms are better positioned to bear the, the cost of compliance with regulatory regimes, which you know can have the effect of creating a, a moat to keep out smaller startups, other alternative business models. I think there was a, a couple interesting studies in, in Europe around the GDPR that showed that the, the big tech firms, you know, came out ahead, even though it cost them money uh, and <laughs> they gained market share. So I think, you know, that's the risk here, that DC sees all of tech policy as about what the big companies cares about. And that's not what they should be thinking about. I think, you know, we, we had a very different kind of narrative in the late 20th century where, you know, it was a, it was a wartime environment. It was following on, on the Sputnik moment where there's fear of technological surprise. And so a lot of that led to the investments that helped create Silicon Valley. You know, it's a lot of public funding that went into the semiconductor industry that, you know, California is home to a lot of defense tech companies. And, you know, there was always this sort of relationship between the universities, the DOD, the Apollo program, you know, whether as purchaser or whether as sort of investor through vehicles like the National Science Foundation or DARPA or so forth. And even more recently, 
I mean, people often cite the example of, well, DARPA funded, you know, ARPANET, the predecessor to the internet or GPS or, you know, things in that era, but there were also therefore, a lot more. Therefore, Al Gore invented the internet. Therefore, Al Gore invented the internet. But no, <laughs> I mean, like actually J.C.R. Licklider, who was the DARPA head at the time, had a very compelling kind of far future vision of this and, and, and wrote about it in a really cool way. It won uh, essay on the sort of future of libraries, which was incredibly interesting. Another on man-computer symbiosis, which is well ahead of its time. So, you know, say, don't say that the government can never have, have foresight, but I don't know that we should always bet on it. And when it comes to technology and politics and policy today, arguably there's a lot of extreme thinking. So, right. you know, there are folks that are saying, they're looking at what's been going on with these companies and they're saying, yeah, there were some good developments, but at the end of the day, it's harming teenage mental health. We're creating a generation of zombies who stare at their phones. Literally, their bones are <laughs> changing because we're hunched over looking at screens and phones all day and that this is terrible and we need to slow things down. A very like traditional, you know, quote unquote, conservative view, right, to, to stop the radical change in society that is too fast for society to absorb. Then at the other end of the extreme hypothetical that, I, that I'm offering up right now, you have a lot of folks in D.C. who just say, Basically, every technological development is positive, that the people who oppose it are the new Luddites, and that you know there's fear-mongering, there's panics, right? That all of the discussion is very reminiscent of people who freaked out about the radio or they freaked out about the television set, and that eventually this stuff will all sort itself out, and all the people skeptical of big tech will look like idiots. If those are the two extremes, Luddites and you know rose-colored glasses techno-optimists, where do you see yourself and Lincoln Network fitting in on the spectrum? So I think like, you know, when you talk about like what the, what, the, what what is the role of a, of a techno-optimist that really wants to maximize technological progress? And I think there's a danger that if you're too rose-colored glasses and if you're, if you're too dismissive of the downsides and brush them off and gaslight people who raise legitimate concerns, that you know, that slows down progress because then you have what we're seeing now, I think, in but DC, the which is an over, yeah, the tech clash, an overreaction against tech. And I think an effective proponent of dynamism is to take seriously, you know, the, the harms and negative externalities while not going overboard, while not being overly broad, and while not, you know, internalizing this kind of, you know, this kind of ex-ante precautionary type of thinking. I think, in general, in most cases, the this sort of thesis of permissionless innovation is, for the most part, right. I think, you know, in general, you want to be biased towards innovation. That the you know arc of human history has tended towards instead stagnation, and you know you you get I think structurally in innovation, you know, kind of a unique kind of opposition built into it. You have this idea. That that Joseph Schumpeter famously described of creative destruction, which you know, come new. He described it in sort of biological terms, which I think is very interesting, and, and and as a structural part of sort of the capitalist system, where you have kind of innovators always coming in, putting kind of old modes of production and industry out of business, and creating new ones, continual rebirth. The problem with that in Washington D.C is that those people you're trying to put out of business have very connected lobbyists, trade associations, and advocates that 
will take their point of view. And so you have to meet this challenge that even while there may be legitimate harms and negative externalities, that there's also kind of a set of often bad faith advocates trying to overplay those and to slow those down. I think you see this in you know, industries like autonomous vehicles that want to kind of come in, particularly in a place like trucking, and deliver a lot of value to lower costs for consumers, to make things more efficient. But labor has been a very aggressive force in trying to prevent federal legislation there. So, you know, that's something we have to overcome. At the same time, you know, as you, as you alluded to, I think, I think there are people who are too far on the rosy colored glasses side. Yeah, and they're not dealing necessarily with the realities that there's going to be a backlash when jobs get shipped overseas or when communities are disrupted, when change happens at such a rapid pace that institutions, right. communities, neighborhoods cannot react to it. And that raises the question of what is the role of government? Under a laissez-faire approach, you kind of just let all the creative destruction happen. And, and one can make the argument that that's dynamism, that's vigorous progress. But would it just be naive to ignore these externalities? And I guess you're arguing that if you ignore them or you gaslight and pretend that they're not bad, you're going to get an overreaction that slows progress. Exactly. Yeah. So I think another piece of this, that the, the sort of hardline advocates of permissionless innovation can make is, is sort of ignoring that technology should fundamentally serve human ends. And it's not just about pure economic maximization, right? And you're seeing that even in the Republican Party, in particular on the right, you're seeing this rejection of the old idea that maximizing shareholder value is necessarily the best thing for humans and society. You're really seeing a shift here. And you're seeing this with senators like Rubio and Hawley and others who are saying capitalism is good, right? Markets are good. But at the end of the day, these developments, these advancements, these businesses should in some way serve society and the country, not just shareholders. We like markets. Markets are good because markets are a generally very good tool to serve human ends, community life, family life, and society. And, you know, when they don't do that, I think there are legitimate reasons to use a different tool. I think a good example of that we alluded to earlier, which is which is China, which is where we have American tech firms trying to get access to the very large, lucrative Chinese market and are willing to make a lot of illiberal, anti-democratic concessions to get there. And whereas I think, you know, a few decades ago, tech was seen like blue jeans and rock and roll as exporting American values in the small L liberal sense of of free speech, of economic freedom, of open markets, and that even if we were going into a place that leaned a little more authoritarian, that it would help eventually open them up and promote freedom. And I think that has been a very difficult position to maintain in more recent years, particularly in countries like China, yep. where you know industries like Hollywood are doing propaganda for their regime, or companies like Apple are banning VPNs or cracking down on tools that allow protesters to organize by like restricting airdrop or by, if you have iCloud in China, it's stored on state telecom owned servers with very questionable hardware security modules and suspicious encryption, like stuff that where they probably have technical access. And so 
that stuff is very hard to reconcile with, you know, their CEO going out and saying, you know, human, you know, privacy is a fundamental human right or, you know, other kinds of things like that, which are, you know, the big brother ad as, as marketing position, I think doesn't hold up very well when they're serving a, you know, totalitarian police state. And that's been one of the biggest shifts we've seen in not just technology as a, an economic sector, but also as a policy sector is the view of China and the role of China. Because I, I will be the first to admit that I was definitely on board with the idea that doing business with China would eventually force them to liberalize because the march of globalization had had that effect on so many other countries. And of course, once the Chinese middle class rises and they're exposed to our values through technology, everything will be great. And I think a lot of the folks who approved of China joining the World Trade Organization, I believe in the early 2000s, probably believe that too. And I think a lot of us, at least I would hope, are willing to admit that that's not how things played out. And in fact, China has found a way to use technology to enable oppression, not just not just found a workaround. They're actively using these tools to oppress their own people. So that shift in China and the attitude toward China, does that necessitate a shift in how we think about industrial policy in the United States, for example, right? We, we had long said, as a country, hands-off approach is going to lead to the best outcomes because companies will sort this out. And But if you have companies that are not necessarily, quote-unquote, loyal to the West, does that mean we need a shift in the interaction between our government and technology companies? Yeah. Industrial policy, I think, is, is, a, is a bad term. I think it's, you know, a very, very weighted one. It, ha- it gets a lot of, you know, deserve criticism, but also some un- unfair criticism. So, you know, the question is, like, are we kind of overexposed on, you know, building certain kinds of strategically important technology in China? I think the answer is yes. And I think looking, for example, at the, you know, current situation between Europe and, and Russia, we can see very clearly that becoming critically dependent on like Gazprom, Europe's going into winter and, and was, you know, way overexposed on Russian gas. And so I think, you know, free trade with authoritarian regimes to the point that you become dependent on them and that they're not necessarily going to just, you know, optimize for economic rationality. You know, I think, you know, China, we're, we're in a similar situation. And we've seen, you know, even going back to the to the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, a lot of signs, a lot of warning signs that U.S. tech firms were kind of selling out our values. You know, Cisco helped build the great firewall. More recently, Oracle allegedly was shopping their technology to the police. You had an incident where Airbnb was renting out property by the the paramilitary corporation in Xinjiang that organized the concentration camps. So like very bad stuff. Whereas here, you know, you don't hear that much about that in terms of criticism of the companies. It's more all of the, you know, misinformation on Facebook or something like that, right? Or Elon is bad for allowing too much speech, which I think, you know, there are legitimate criticisms there. But if you really want to talk about stuff that is anti-democracy, you should be paying more attention to how U.S. tech companies are are undermining pro-democracy movements and enabling, you know, kind of bad actors abroad. So Lincoln Network, we're a tech policy think tank, right? What makes us different? Part of us is a think tank. So we have kind of three 
operational silos. One is, a, you know, like you said, a boutique think tank. We do research. We try to do impact research that's relevant to the policymaking process, not just ivory tower kind of academic white papers. We also have a, a technical team of product people, of designers, of software engineers. And there we have a, a kind of more right-leaning version of this idea of, of public interest technology, which is something, you know, typically kind of left of center groups have been working on for a while, which just means stuff that's important, but doesn't have the sort of profit potential to attract traditional venture capital or institutional investment. And then we have our kind of original work stream as our, as our third department, which is convenings, fellowships, network building, really about that translation infrastructure between the, the worlds of tech and policy. And so we're active in a lot of the big tech hubs across the U.S. We do a lot of kind of programming in Miami and Austin and the Bay Area and New York and, of course, in D.C. as well. So our, what we try to do to be different than the traditional kind of D.C. think tank is to really commingle and cross-pollinate the sort of ideas and perspectives of, of the sort of not just the big companies, but of the people who are the builders and you know, people in D.C., hopefully to try to reframe that perspective about that fundamental perspective about what is innovation policy. And I thought the best way for Lincoln to differentiate itself in the world was to start a podcast, obviously, because as I discussed with you, I gazed out onto the landscape of podcasts in this country and the world. And I, and I just didn't see any, it just didn't seem like there were any podcasts <laughs> out there. So I thought, why not us? Right. So that, I mean, think about it, all these great things you said about Lincoln, but our crown jewel will just be this podcast, right? <laughs> Well, and of course, I also have to to promote our other two affiliated podcasts. We'll probably never eclipse the listenership of The Realignment with Marshall and Sager. But uh, if you don't subscribe to that, you should also check that one out. And then, of course, our, our more exciting podcast as well is from Antonio Garcia Martinez, who's a non-resident senior fellow at, at Lincoln Network and has a, has a fantastic podcast called The Pull Request. Well, that is daunting internal competition. I will do my best. Really, yeah. I think we're trying. We're trying to just all kind of have synergy and and cross promote each other. And you know, we, we will have hardcore competition with our our rivals at other think tanks. But honestly, all joking aside, what will make this podcast different is what makes Lincoln different. And and you know, we're going to have conversations with folks that you might not not otherwise hear from because I mean, that's the benefit of this network is that. There are people who are making decisions about how products should work that are going to directly influence the conversation in D.C. in a way that perhaps the Congress is not, not even contemplating, right? And we're going to try to get on top of that. We're going to have conversations with people who understand the pipeline between engineering in Silicon Valley or elsewhere and the bills that get written in Congress, we're going to talk about China and we're going to talk about the issues, the unique issues posed by the Chinese Communist Party and the changing relationship between that regime and the technology sector. So we're going to make it fun. We're going to make it interesting. You will not regret the time you spend listening to us, I hope. Zach, anything else? Where can people find our great work? Do we have a website? We have, we have three podcasts. Do we have one website? We, we, we <laughs> <laughs> you can find us all on Apple Podcasts. But yeah, um, no, I mean, like, you know, to just riff on what you said, I think like we have a lot of really cool, interesting people in our network. And, you know, one of our reasons for doing this podcast is just creating more of a platform for people who we interact with and have on our other events. And, 
you know, another way to kind of hear a different take on some of the issues of the day and also shed light on some of the, as you said, Evan, like some of the technical issues and, and realizing that increasingly these debates are kind of downstream of, of the technical questions and not just something to to leave for the, you know, poli-sci majors and lawyers. <laughs> no offense to them. I'm a political communication major, so one step removed, but no offense, not a lawyer. So check us out at lincolnpolicy.org. Definitely subscribe to our other podcasts, as Zach mentioned. Perhaps I will remember to put some of the interesting articles uh, he mentioned in the show notes so that you can uh, check those out and get a sense of where his head is at. And uh, of course, find this podcast in the big tech platforms. That's the easiest place to find them, right? right. Apple Podcasts, Google Play. If you use a much smaller platform, you want to support small podcast business, we of course support that. If you like what you hear, write a review. If you don't like what you hear, send Zach hate mail. Please don't write a review if you don't like it. these numbers. But obviously, uh, check us out and uh, we'll look forward to being in your feed next time.